that I've read and listened to on Egypt, it sounds like it's, um, it, it comes from, you know, the, the regularity of the Nile and this sort of analytical approach. It seems like it's a very, now, you know, uh, they had slaves, so it's not like <laughs> great, but it is a very like analytical approach, um, as far as it goes from, the structure of people up to the gods uh, and back down again, how they all relate to each other. Um, This like, and you know, I don't want to jump ahead in kingdoms or whatever, but just the understanding of like the mot, like the, Mm -hmm. the, you know, balance of things. It's it's like your Japanese word. If they two vowels next to each other, you got to put a, a a break between them. So it's like ma'at. Uh, Ma'at. Ma'at. There we go. <clears throat> what is it? Does it have like an apostrophe in it? Uh, so like in some of the texts, they'll put an apostrophe, some they won't. Some they'll kind of like put a space between the M-A and the A-T. But in my Egyptology class, it was Ma'at. Like like a s- silent was... H broke up the two vowels. That was like, was such a interesting uh thing to learn whenever i started learning ancient greek was um no h sound in greek uh it's an apostrophe and it's the breathing out is not a letter yeah it's it's not a consonant yeah yeah (laughs) yeah but yeah so um you get then also understanding the sort of geography of egypt which is kind of was in college you know i don't know i was stupid um, so when I was taking no. these Egyptology classes, uh, it, it was kind of like always having to reinforce in my mind, the Nile flows south to north because like whatever reason, just your stupid brain, um, as it solves basic puzzles, when it looks at maps thinks, oh yeah, all the water gathers out of the Mediterranean sea into this big funnel. And then it just flows down into Egypt and then it just flows down towards Sudan. Right. That's the way what? rivers work. But I swear that like that was like a a like fun fact that would be on things and it's it's like it's not that I if somebody hadn't introduced it to me as something novel to think about I don't think we would have struggled with this but it seems like you go to Burger King and open up the big kids meal and it's got this the, the river Nile know? flows north to south to north what it's not like, like yeah. the Mississippi 
the mighty Mississippi. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, it's this it's weird not. anti-gravitational river. No, no, that's not what's <laughs> happening. There's there's big mountains at the border of Sudan and, and Egypt in the southern border, and then the elevation drops precipitously as you go from the yeah. south of Egypt to... So that, in, in Egyptology class, you know, it's referred to as Upper Egypt is South Egypt, and Lower Egypt is the Nile Delta. So that, that's the other way to think about it in your head, which is also confusing. Did, right. <laughs> did did the Egyptians have this designation as well as Upper and Lower Egypt? Yes. I don't know if they have like the specific words as far as de- deriving it from elevation. They do, in the Middle Kingdom, establish lots of a big series of forts that go up the river and... As the river, as the Nile goes up back towards Sudan, there are big waterfalls, like breaks, as it as it drops in elevation. Um, and so there were forts that were set up at these different waterfall points and at different bends in the river, um, as a way of protecting, you know, national security, protecting invasions from people. Because back then, the southern portion of Egypt and Sudan was called Nubia. So to protect from invasions from the Nubians, they established tons of forts along that portion of the river. Um, And so those did like cascade in elevation. Um, But one thing to note is that for pretty much all of Egypt's history, it is a story of two kingdoms of the kingdom which is pretty much always in thebes or around thebes in the south and the kingdom that is in up north the towards the delta near cairo and modern day cairo in, in upper egypt or in uh, lower egypt northern egypt and at certain points those are totally unified and those are considered like the golden era years of the three different kingdoms and at other points they're total odds with each other and it's civil war uh, going on. Um, so that that is, it is sort of a brother versus brother, north versus south, from the very inception, going back to the very first settlement, which is in the south of Egypt, as it works its way up north, there's not like a super awesome lines of communication that stay between the, the groups as they move north along the, the Nile River watershed area it's uh people get established up in the north and then they come to find out that uh the the people in the south are still doing like the old traditional stuff and the people in the north have moved on to some new things and man that's a big disagreement whenever they find that type of stuff out is is cairo was that like the center of uh, like the main kingdom or anything like like where is that located just so I can get kind of a modern day it's more in the north towards the delta and that's where you have like the the pyramids and all that type of stuff um, yeah and okay. that is the it is more seen as the it's more incorrectly seen as the ruling epicenter of Egypt because that is where in the late kingdom and then after sort of the demise of the the real structure of like Egypt's culture or Pharaoh culture and things like that, when basically it's being ruled by Rome and and different people from Syria and, and different groups that come in and sort of take over in the Hellenistic era. Um, that's all where they operate from. So in the Western tradition and the Western mindset, people always think of that area as like, Oh, this is the epicenter of power, but really Thebes and the temple of Karnak in the South are, that's the fucking, that's the power seat that everyone wants. 
that's the thing that really controls most of Egypt throughout the entire time. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, so um, you have those first carvings of a bunch of cows. Um, that first settlement where you have the first calendar, it also has one of the first monolithic statues, which is a, a giant piece of limestone that is quarried from another place and brought and carved. And no one really knows exactly what it was supposed to represent because it was probably carved in a basic shape and then they like painted it with red okra and other pigments and stuff to do whatever around it. Um, but you know, a lot of people say, hey, that looks exactly like a cow. And it does kind of look exactly like a cow. It doesn't have like a bunch of features carved into it because it's, you know, 15,000 years old or whatever. But um, it's it's interesting that you have a very early example of carving stone from a far away place <laughs> and bringing it to another place to make it a monument in the center of a very old, old settlement. <laughs> and that becomes like part of a ritualistic tradition for the next, you know, uh, 7,000 years of, of, a, of a group of people. Um, so you have also like the Nile, uh, it goes through these flood and, and wane station, uh, stages. And the, what happens is when it floods, it carries huge amounts of silt deposits up the river towards the Nile Delta. And then when the water recedes again, all that silt is just left on either side of the banks. And that is really fertile soil. So, and it's still really fertile soil. Like you'll go to the, you'll, you'll see footage of like the center of the desert in, in Egypt. And they will be like, the most vibrant color display of all types of fruits and vegetables you've ever seen in your life. Because this silty, nutrient-rich soil in Egypt can grow any crop in the world, basically. It's not limited to, like, specific types of things. It is so nutrient-rich, you can do anything with it. Um, and so part of the early understandings of Egyptian religion is understanding this knowledge of planting and understanding the knowledge of the nutrient-rich soil and understanding the knowledge of we got to give the soil a break. Like we'll plant and then we got to give it a break for a few months and then we'll plant and we got to give it a break because that's part of respecting nature and understanding that in order for, to, for it to keep giving to us, we have to give to it type of very not necessarily spiritual out-of-body understandings but very pragmatic practical relationships with with nature as and interpreted in a way that we don't want to fuck up this balance because that will kill us which you can yeah. see later on when the information is not widely shared by every single person in the civilization and that information gets held by only the powerful wealthy people then that becomes a source of divinity rather than like a source of pragmatism um, so that, that's a very, you know, common thread and the same thing with all sort of the early period, the old kingdom representation of animals as gods. You don't have very many representations of humans as gods in the old kingdom. Um, it's, it's animals. Uh, so you have, you know, the cattle, um, and that's Hathor, which is a female god of, uh, of nurturing and because basically like we talked about before you have the oral tradition where if you talk a, tell a story about a cow people understand that in Egypt from a 
telling the story of a mother because when you observe cows, they're very, they take care of their young, the, that relationship and that bond just from natural observation lets you know the context of what you're talking about. When you refer to another woman as a cow, you don't have to explain all the words that go around that definition. You can just say she's a cow and everyone understands what you mean by that. It's also not calling them a God but it is sort of a practical relationship of, un, of being able to communicate. Um, and then you also have um, <clears throat> Amun, the, the god of uh, virility and sex and, um, and power, and that is represented by a ram. And so you see in the Old Kingdom lots of cow sculptures and reliefs, lots of ram sculptures and reliefs protecting the individual kings of the time um so it's all it's depicted as like the cow is huge and the ram is huge and the pharaoh or the king is very tiny like those beings are protecting the king and the king in, as a result is maintaining balance and harmony with nature this is where the balance aspect really comes in because all the foundational element of the Egyptian religion is this concept of balance. Similar to a yin-yang kind of concept, um, basically that nature provides, we have to respect it in a way that keeps it providing, and if any way that balance gets out of whack, then chaos will ensue. And that's also interpreted as a way of the sort of isolationist nature of the early um, civilization that at the outskirts of this civilization jewel we have created is chaos like there's chaotic animals there's lions they kill us there's crocodiles they kill us there's hippos they kill us there's also tribes of other human beings that they'll they kill us so the chaos is considered on the outskirts all the time there's this dark ring of chaos and it is the job of the ruler to maintain the balance so that the chaos doesn't overtake the civilization. And so when you see depictions of like, they created a goddess for the lion, and they created a, god, a goddess for the hippo, and they created a god for the crocodile. And again, it's wrong for us to necessarily infer like significance as if they worshiped these things as supernatural creatures that... Um, as the way that we think of God. It's more that they created a manifestation of the thing that was the chaotic fear. And by doing so, they created some sort of control over it. Once you had a manifestation of a lion, you could bring an offering to the lion so that the lion would stay at bay on the edges of the civilization and not come and eat your children. Not that you're worshiping the lion as a god, but you've created a mm -hmm. way to communicate what your please lions don't eat my children <clears throat> so that's sort of the early period and i'm generalizing a lot of this um but as you see the in the old kingdom the the monuments slowly change from being animal-centric pharaoh tiny to being pharaoh-centric animals tiny <laughs> or pharaoh <laughs> now has an animal head and Pharaoh has combined with the animals to, you know, gain their power. And part of that is just as civilization grows, information is not disseminated as easily. There is no priest class yet in the Old Kingdom. Um, it's almost like uh, people come and, like, will do a representation job for, like, a month. 
and they'll help with like the harvest where they'll like be the physical manifestation of whatever the harvesting God is. And then they go back home. They just had to go wear the headdress for like a month and do the thing. And then they go back home. It's just like, it was my turn to do it. Now next month it'll be another person's turn to do it. Was not like a program for the priest class. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Like, um, there wasn't any political power in being a priest. There was not, you know, anything like that yet. It was all Mm. under the guise of the Pharaoh. And so you get to, um, the end of the, of the old kingdom and you have, uh, Pharaoh Pepe and he's rumored to have ruled for a hundred years. Well, they would do this, uh, sort of, um, celebration of the pharaoh like his at the 30 years rule mark when pharaoh's been ruling for 30 years they do this big jubilee and part of the um ceremony is basically a ceremony where all the people come and the pharaoh has to do a bunch of physical challenges to prove that he still has the virility (laughs) to be pharaoh and the gods are still bestowing upon him the physical gifts to be in charge so he has to like run this long race by himself where he like does these first two big laps in this in this center area, um, the first two to, are to show that the gods have still given him the strength to be the ruler of Lower Egypt, and then he does two more laps to show that he can still be the ruler of Upper Egypt. Show that the gods are still like, look, he's got enough virility to make it through both the la- both sections of these of these laps. Shows that he's still our chosen ruler of both Upper and Lower Egypt. Well, Pepe does a great job on his first one. Yeah, and then the second one, you know, he's like in his 60s. He still, he, d- he makes it. And the third one, he's like in his 90s. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, he can't do it. He like collapses. His body gives out on him. And this is like one of the first times where people are like, oh shit, I thought uh, you were supposed to be like a god and it looks like uh, you're not anymore. So what's yeah. what's going yeah. on here? And soon after you also enter what is the first dark ages of Egypt, which is extreme (laughs) amounts of famine start. So everyone starts questioning the gods. And this is the first time like depictions of not, um, just like awesome times and look how great we are. And, uh, look at all this bountiful harvest and food and look at the control we have. All of that goes away. The, the the ma'at the balance is totally upset and people are willing to do anything to restore the balance um so like in the hieroglyphs you see the first um when when the dark ages first start the famine first starts you first see these very um uh graphic depictions of emaciated egyptians not not people, not wealthy people, not people with like headdresses and fake beards on in the hieroglyphs, but like normal looking human beings, ribs, cages showing, just totally emaciated in piles. And the stories are about very, uh, very MAGA type stories like, oh, this is what's happening on our borders. <laughs> we got to we got to do something to appease the gods or a bunch of these um, these border people are going to start to bring the famine into the into the land and then all the people that are actual like real citizens we're going to start to feel it because the border people are going to bring in the famine it's not like not like the climate is causing the famine it's like oh it's these interlopers that are trying to get into our good graces they're the bad guys we gotta we gotta figure out how to stop them yeah that's that seems to be 
something that's interesting going through and learning about all these different cultures is like the way that they express it is different, but it's all the same like stuff that's being repeated in modern. <laughs> yeah, times, yeah, you know. <laughs> so the this dark age lasts for a few hundred years, but to to sort of sum up it, things fracture like to like the cults fracture inside of each different city and civilization. They all start to appease different gods. And not just that, you get the sort of introduction of the idea that um, it's not the divinity of the leader that has control or sway with the gods. It's with us individuals, the people. So you get a lot of more ideas of individual mysticism and magic where like Mm. the people can like, you, you find a lot now in the archaeological record from this time of people making like little clay dolls and then they write a little um, like a little script on it and that is a curse or a blessing. And it's like them specifically cursing another person, you know, or specifically cursing their boss or specifically cursing uh, their husband because they, they took another wife and like all of this type of stuff starts to show up in the archaeological record. Um, more being like the interesting thing being that this idea that any any upper level person is the only conduit to divinity is is shattered. Now we have this in, individual relationship with divinity. Is is this also the same time, or does this come later? That the belief in like only pharaohs would go to like the the afterlife with the gods is this around the time when people are like eh, anybody can go into an afterlife so with the gods. so in the old kingdom is when you get the major monument building you have the pyramids mm-hmm. and the very beginning you you do have a lot of mummification and this this is shows up in the neolithic record um you have very early mummification in the desert sands of all people in in the tribe and in the in the civilization mm-hmm. um of course, just because you have remains and sort of specific burial rituals doesn't mean we can infer exactly what the meaning was, whether they thought at that moment that there was an afterlife or whether they thought yeah. preservation meant something bigger like it did, you know, 4,000 years later when uh, when like Ramses and uh, and Tutankhamun and all those people are being buried in the Valley of the Kings. If that if that is the same interpretation then as it carries over 4,000 years later, or if it's totally, you know, telephone gamed by the time it gets there, and <laughs> who knows if it's the same. Yeah, well, like the, the thing with like burials and stuff real quick is we, since we can't infer meaning to it, like you could say, um, preserving the body doesn't allow it to then be returned to the earth. So, you know, it could very well be that those ancient people thought, well, yeah, this is how, this is what we do with bad people. They're not allowed to like be returned to the earth so they can't come back or, you know, right. like, so you can't, it could be these two, like it could be mummification was for bad people and stuff. So oh yeah, it's just and- interesting to know that like eventually in Egypt, we know why they did it. But yeah, those early people, you can't, it could be a totally opposite meaning that you can't use the Egyptians to judge it by. Exactly. And in the old kingdom, there is the evidence like before written evidence before written language that there are leaders and they have the mass graves of where the leader is buried and there's hundreds of people buried with them. 
and it show and the way that they're laid out shows like it probably was like a ritualistic killing of all of the servants of the leader at the time and then they were all stabbed and thrown into the pit together at the same time and then covered up um and that didn't last very long uh because it seems kind of obvious like if you kill all the servants of every king like who's going to be the servants of the next king (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so there's only like a few a very short period of time in the archaeological record where you see these mass burials of of everyone sort of being sacrificed at the same time um but in those areas they still are burying after they do the mass burials they still do bury the kings with like a bunch of food and beer and mummified cows and milk jugs and all of this stuff meaning that there was some sort of idea that you're going to need you needed sustenance when you were alive, you're going to need sustenance in the afterlife too. And we've got to like make sure you're taken care of in the afterlife type of thing. But that's still just inference because there's not a written understanding of what was actually going on at that point in time for us to truly understand. However, those people were all buried in a very similar place of each other. And it was revered as a sacred area, all of those rulers. Um, and of course, as the old kingdom goes on, then you get much more monument building. You get the step pyramid and then you get the, the big pyramids in Giza and a lot of other sort of funerary uh, monuments. So mm-hmm. I, in the dark ages after the old kingdom, when everything is fractured, you get these different sects that go warring with each other because they obviously think if we can just wipe out this other sect that has bad beliefs, then the gods will bestow their benevolence upon us again because we took out the bad believers and now the good believers are in charge so please give us bountiful plenty um and the one of one of these sects which was kind of like a a rogue sect of the other uh, egyptian tradition at the time goes to the that ancient southern burial site and completely sacks it they burn every body, they dig all the bodies of the ancient rulers up and they burn all of them. And so the entire legacy of all of those ancient kings is destroyed. The whole past of ancient Egypt is wiped out. And the if you go to that site today, you approach it from a distance, you'll see mounds and mounds and mounds of what you think is like rocks and rubble and sand and whatever. But when you get close, you notice that it's all a bunch of pottery. It's shattered pottery, like hundreds and hundreds of feet high, mounds of it everywhere. And the reason this is is because in the thousands of years after that sacking, um, Egyptians would make pilgrimages there to leave offerings of ointment and food and grain and things as a, as a sorrowful request for uh, please look kindly on us that we destroyed our entire heritage. Please let help these ancient kings, you know, make it to the afterlife again so they're not trapped in some, in some pseudo in-between world. Um, and it's all just pottery from thousands of years of pilgrimages just mounded up from people making these offerings. It's, it's, it's crazy. pretty crazy to see. But that becomes a very important thing once all those people's, like, burial sites get sacked when you get to the middle kingdom when things get better again and thebes sort of unites the kingdoms again um 
the whole idea of how we're going to do this ritualistic burying thing is it changes. We're going to start burying ourselves in the ground. We're got, we're not going to do these big obvious places where we buried because last time all those burial sites got raided. <laughs> so we're going to do we're going to do it smarter this time. We're going to have a a better way of doing things. And that's when and so in the middle kingdom is when you get more of um, this unification of ideas where the gods start to play a more prominent role again and it's not necessarily just the pharaoh who's in charge because the pharaoh going back to the end of the old kingdom proved that he's actually not a god he's just a feeble man sorry i've been talking a lot (laughs) please please interject i'm gonna die (laughs) is sorry is is the so the thing that like with the religions with these people um, I know the story of like Osiris was killed by Set and then chopped up into 42 pieces and spread across Egypt. Mm-hmm. Is that in relation to the fracturing of Egypt or is that just a story that like, you know, is kind of the f- some foundational aspect of Egypt? It's it's more um, of a foundational kind of the creation story. Um, and that okay. goes back to when you get a sun god, uh, Ra, or you get mm-hmm. a god of uh fertility and strength like amun um the you have to explain the whole thing and like we talked about with oral tradition this is an oral tradition this was a song that was sung in hymns and done in poetry long before it was ever written down Um, yeah and so it was a way of sort of explaining why does the sun come up and set every day well there's a god and when it goes to the other side, he's going underneath into the underworld. Well, there's an underworld who's in charge of the underworld. Well, we have a moon who's in charge of things up here because we see all these animals and they're all having babies and we see plants and we see all this stuff. So there's a God that's in charge of making those things happen. And that's up here. But in the underworld, there's a different one. And that's Osiris. And then you have to get the idea of where does uh where does the ultimate God that is sort of the one that ties all this together from Horus? And then you're like, well, that's an interesting story because he's the son of Osiris and we had to create, we had to resurrect him from death in order to be able to have a baby with Isis so that then we have this now combo God that can uh, take care of both realms for us and that, that can talk to us and help us communicate with both areas. So the, the, that structure of Egyptian religion is one that I think ties in with like the Maat uh, mm. very well, that it's it shows this, again, kind of analytical approach to these things. But through these stories, it is establishing the social structures and the ways of life. Like the, you know, even just the the aspect of believing in an afterlife and you know it it went from the pharaoh to then anybody can do it but the concept of once you die you're going to have to um your your heart is going to be weighed against a feather from mat so mm-hmm. your heart is going to be shown to have is was it also in balance was it heavier than like uh, you know, bad deeds cause your heart to get heavier. So yeah. then is it something that actually causes you to um, to 
have thrown order out of whack within Egyptian society because the way that these things are structured both within uh, nature and within the society itself, you need order in order for these things to work. And then for the, you know, um, I guess based off of because Osiris was cut into 42 pieces, like they have the 42 different, whenever you die and you go into the afterlife and then you, your heart is allowed, your heart makes it past the hippo alligator lion. That's not going to eat your heart and kill you a second time forever. Then you enter into the gates and you have to pass these like 42 different gates where you have to address the God and like their secret way that they want to be addressed, which is written on the instructions on the inside of your coffin or whatever. Yeah. Or in the, um, the, the death book that they would just, yeah, they just the published a whole book of, uh, of the instructions and then they would just bury you with it. <laughs> right. Which is, it's the thing that I found pretty interesting on it is like, whenever you die and you have to go through this, you have to pass through all of the gates in order to get to the afterlife. Um, like the, the heavenly kind of afterlife, which is like, uh, fields of, you know, wheat or whatever. And so you can farm and hunt for the rest of eternity, um, for fun, which is interesting that that's what eternity was to them. Um, but that you have to go through all of these things before the sun rises in the world again. Otherwise your, your like spirit returns to your body and then you have to wait for the sun to set again. Yeah. Like, and that's- like you have to learn the correct procedure. You have to learn all this stuff. And the procedure is addressing these gods the correct way and saying like, I have not committed a sin of this type. And then the next one is I have not committed robbery with violence. Then the next one, I have not stolen. Mm-hmm. And it's it's all of these things that you need to show you like it's it's like confessing saying that you are innocent to all of these things but when you consider how it relates to a society uh robbery with violence is out of order for like if everybody's robbing with violence in Egypt then you're not going to have a culture and a civilization going right. on the way that they had you know so it's it's one of those things that like you you need to pull it out of the religious context of like oh they thought robbery was a bad thing it's like, yeah well, it's not the ten commandments yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's not because it's bad in itself it's because it causes harm to the society right and that that's another just sort of interesting thing when it comes to concepts of like robbery and things like that there's not like um a, a money system is another thing to think about. Like, we do think about Egypt, oh, look at all this gold and uh, and obsidian and, and jewels and things that they all had. Um, like, th- that was riches, but people were paid in grain for their labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, pretty much the diet was just beef and bread and beer. That's it. <laughs> so, so, like, everyone had access to meat. That was, like, a collective of the entire society. Um, but grain was like what you were paid out at. Like if you worked on, on the pyramids, you were paid out in grain. Um, that's, that was your payment. Um, and like, even like, uh, the very first writing. So like the very first writing we have from ancient Egypt comes from the old kingdom. And it's, uh, it is not 
hieroglyphs on the wall telling the story of the Pharaoh. It is not a religious text. It is not a priest explaining gods. The first writing that exists are these small little ivory tablets, and they're about the size of a postage stamp, and they have different depictions of like uh, different kinds of birds on them and different kinds of river fish and different kinds of things. Um, Those were attached to the bottles of ointment or sacks of grain um, or other valuable things that were sent to the early kings in the old kingdom um, as taxes from the different regions. So the first form of writing was a label to identify the taxes you paid so that it would be accounted for that, yeah, we gave you all of our incense. <laughs> we remember that sack that had our symbol on it? That was that was our taxes. So please mark us down. We paid our taxes. The first writing is just a tax keeping system. <laughs> it is not a religious, you know, text. It is not praising a deity. It is just a record keeping system in order to pay taxes because the civilization was already this concept of collectivism and we have to get things from different regions in order to support all regions of the nation state at once. Would the king then distribute out those uh, taxes and stuff like that? Like how did that? Yeah. So work? it happens different throughout the, diff- the like the 4,000 years we're talking about. Um, at the beginning, like it was kind of a redistribution of just basic goods so that the people who do all the grass farming can get some meat and the people who do all this type of stuff can get the other things and everyone has equal share of resources. Um, because there wasn't like a big reason for a king to just make a big, uh, layer stacked full of like resources that he just hoarded to himself. Yeah. I mean, the grain would go bad, like, right. Uh, like it's yeah um it's and that's the other thing is like even when you build they build the big um um monuments like the they're not they're not made to be stored with the piles of like spoils of war and that type of thing they are just tombs it's not like uh not like ben carson thought they're not grain silos (laughs) 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 so um so there, there, the, there is sort of a, a different idea of like what wealth and abundance means versus what we think when we come from a monetary system and thinking like there's coinage and like uh, hoarding of gold and all that type of stuff. Um, anyway, so Middle Kingdom, that's when you get the big separation between the North and the South. Thebes is the obviously jewel ruling area of Egypt at the time. You get the Hyksos who come over from what is modern day Palestine and they establish a few rulers in the northern kingdom um, as like Hyksos pharaohs um, to which the people who are tr- very traditionally uh, still holding on to the traditional Egyptian religion are like, no, we're not going to deal with this. And there's an uprising and they throw out those foreign leaders and that is the reunification of Egypt again until another prosperous age. And isn't the the Hyksos were the people like they brought with them compound bows and chariots yeah. and that's how they were originally able to take over for a bit. Yeah, so you get the it once uh, the compound bows and the chariots make it to Thebes, you get uh the army Egyptian armies really coming up with new tactics by combining those two technologies 
Egypt already had bow and arrow, but it was just a singular, you know, piece of wood bow. It only worked at like close ranges. Um, but now you have compound bows and you can really fire that stuff. And they're small enough that you can fire them from chariots. And they, that's how they just wiped out the Hyksos and drove them out of the country. <clears throat> and so you get the, the Middle Ages of Prosperity. Things are going good. Um, and this is also where you get the idea that um, Amun is re repositioned again as the head god of Egypt, um, as you know, the original ram god from all the way back in the in the Neolithic time. Like he's now the main dude again, even though we still all believe in the pantheon of gods and there's thousands of gods and they all have very specific control. Um, Amun is now the main dude again. Um, and when the the next series of Dark Age and Famine happens again that ends the Middle Kingdoms, um, that is when um, that all comes down again. And uh, when the rise of the New Kingdom happens is when uh, you get the replacement of Amun and the multi-pantheon of gods again with okay, the Pharaoh is now a living God again. And that is because when you come out of the next Dark Ages, the skepticism amongst the, the people starts to lay hold more into the political power of the appointment of the leader to maintain the balance by actually having grain stores and actually having major political appointments and actually having diplomats that work with other nations and having the, uh, like a much more what we would understand as a bureaucratic control of the political power that becomes the new um, king of the day understanding of how the rulership works and that is sort of the understanding of the golden age of the the new kingdom the onset of the new kingdom because if we can have rulers that have good bureaucracy then we can stave off the next famine it's not going to be us sacrificing endlessly to the gods that's going to get us off the next famine it's going to be having well thought out people in charge and only a God in charge could really get all the best people and put together the best bureaucracy to handle this deal. Is this when the, like the time frame? is that when like the, they start bumping up against other, like the Greeks and stuff like that? Yeah, well, that's much later in the, the late stage oh, of okay. the new kingdom. So like the new kingdom starts, uh, like 1500 BC and it's glory years last about a thousand and then its dwindling years are like 500 BC on. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, like, I can't remember what video I was watching. It might have been Crash Course, but the New Kingdom is when, like, King Tut is from. Right. Um, and they they mentions, which, like, blows your mind whenever you think about it, uh, but King Tut was uh, alive and died five and a half lengths of the time America has been around from when the pyramids were built. Right. <laughs> like he's, he's 1200 years after the pyramids. Yeah. And, and the uh, pyramids are, are late in the old kingdom. <laughs> they're, they're like yeah. the very last thing of the old kingdom before the dark ages happened. And the old kingdom is around like a good 1500 years before that too. And the civilization yeah, exists without writing for like 2000 years before that. 
Yeah, yeah. It's um it's pretty wild how how long this civilization lasted. But then you can attribute that to like the natural like luck that they had that it just was such an easy like I saw something saying that the the silt deposits on the edge of the Nile were so um so full of nutrients and everything that like they didn't even need to themselves physically plant stuff. They would just throw seeds out and then let their like cattle walk along yeah, to just yeah. punch it into the ground. It's like the it's Johnny Appleseed story. <laughs> yeah. And they they like to so that they weren't just right up against the river, they built their own irrigation systems where they could like kind of carve out stuff so that whenever it flooded, it would also pour water more uh, away from the river inland Mm -hmm. so that they would have, you know, these big kind of farming areas. Um, and when you compare that to like last week, when we're talking about the Mesopotamia and the Tigris and the Euphrates who would just randomly flood and then destroy entire civilizations instead of being a providing force of, um, regularity. Yeah. It's interesting that this, you then have in Egypt developed this culture of bureaucracy yeah and that that's a big staple of like the rise again of the new kingdom is these big government projects of irrigation to really standardize that type of stuff to really we're not going to all starve to death again it's not going to happen again (laughs) we are going to figure this out and we are going to make sure it doesn't happen again which in a lot of ways you still have to go back and kind of don't don't prescribe your modern understanding of religion onto some of those texts because it is still a lot of ways of sharing information through stories so that you have practical information disseminated to all of the people so that they can all understand how basics of irrigation work and not the people in the little bitty suburbs of the Nile that are like offshoots that aren't major cities where still thousands of people live they get the information on how to do this and it doesn't take like you can't just live in a major city in order to get this benefit yeah um this is oh go ahead go ahead uh, so i was gonna say the the end of the middle kingdom is because of uh, a bunch of warlording takes over um and they they all fight with each other which eventually decimates things because they're fighting over resources that are limited because there's more famine. So the rise again is the reunification where we're all going to share resources and we're going to figure out ways to not die. Um, as things are going great, you get to uh, the person that is referenced a lot, Akhenaten. And in my and when I learned Egyptology and. 20 years ago, like it was still considered like on, this is when monotheism entered the world. (laughs) Um, But it's not the case, especially uh, modern archeologists and understanding without, you know, implying interpretation onto it and just taking things for what they are. Um, It's not that he wanted to get rid of the pantheon of gods and um, only worship one. He, uh, he just wanted, he just liked Aten the most and Aten was the one who kind of like was his his like spirit animal or like it was like the brand that he wore, you know, whenever he showed yeah. up. It was like this. Is, I, I only wear Nike stuff, guys. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you guys, you can like still have other brands, but just understand in my temple, in my place, everyone can only wear Nike stuff. Um, 
And so it's not really the sudden rise of monotheism. It's just this guy was really obsessed with Otten to the point where he was like, look, when you're around me, just don't bring any up, don't bring up any of the other ones. Okay. And, um, the, uh, Doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, his whole reign lasts, but after he dies, like it's, Two gener- within two generations, the people have completely desecrated his memory by calling him a heretic and like defacing his monuments. And in the new hieroglyphs of the rulers after him, they talk about how terrible he was and how he wanted to ruin all of uh, Egyptian tradition by trying to enforce Aten on everyone and all of this type of thing. So while you might think of that, while past scholars might have noted that here it comes, monotheism, it's right on track. Like, that is not the entrance of monotheism into the chat. <laughs> Akhenaten is not that thing that people <laughs> want to ascribe him to. Um, but what happens as a result of that is not that um, necessarily people uh, get mad and get real, uh, real infighting about how they want to interpret the religion. What happens is that is the last draw of considering pharaohs are are divine like that's it we're not we're not going down this bullshit anymore and part (laughs) of that is because during the new kingdom the rise of the priest class happens and Uh. every single city has like a different temple to what the foundation god is of that city um, and so the priests are in charge of maintaining that temple and every Pharaoh, he doesn't just build his like funeral, uh, monument or tomb or whatever. He also has to give, um, money and, uh, or gold and treasure to every single temple for all the different gods in all the different cities and add on a wing to like that temple in Thebes and add on a wing to this other temple and add on, you know, kind of like our hall of president, our presidents get libraries. Like imagine if like every president during his reign as president had to go to every single library in every city in America and add on a special wing to show that he was a cool president during the time when he was a president. Um, So that's, that's basically what it is. But those temples serve as the economic centers and livelihood centers for all the cities in Egypt. So as the Pharaoh gives resources to that temple, the priests in charge of that temple are in charge of disseminating those resources so that the people can build on to more stuff on the temple. Then all the people in the city can get more grain. And it was the economic center of how things worked. That was the way that people got resources. So when Ramses comes around and he's just like, let's run up a deficit. I don't care. I want the best wings added to all the temples. Not just that. I want to have the best funeral monuments. I want mine are going to be bigger than everybody's. And I want everyone to know and all the priests to know that I was the badass who built all this stuff. Um, well, he so thoroughly bankrupts the country and so thoroughly cause like an actual inflation happens. There's no money system, but inflation happens to where like grain is like so valuable per each 
each piece of grain because there's so little of it left. <laughs> um, it's that inflation is out of whack. So people are building these monuments, these additions to these temples in all the cities, the big one being Karnak and Thebes. And it comes time to, for them to get their monthly ration because that's what they're paid. They're paid in bags of grain. Month comes around and uh, paychecks don't clear. No grain shows up. <laughs> so people are like, okay, well, we can understand a snafu in the system for one month, so we'll keep going. Month two comes around, snafu happens again. You get the first labor uprising <laughs> in recorded history <laughs> 3,000 years ago, and it's by these workers at these different tipple sites, and there's actual hieroglyphs of tons of people yelling, we're hungry, we're not working, at, at, Pharaoh, at the Pharaoh in, in the walls of these temples. And so... Go ahead. You you had to have though, like societally, you had to have the breakdown happen before this point that pharaohs are no longer gods. Right. 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 Like the you have the priests, people would not. You have the ahead. priests in those temples already before Ramses have already started being like, oh cool, we did the relief of the pharaoh. Well, right next to it, we'll do the relief of the the priest who is in charge of the temple right now when that pharaoh is and guess what we'll just be the same size as him like it's cool <laughs> like we don't have to be a little small diminutive things we can be right on and then like after ramses the priests start being the same size like when you look at them like their heads match but then uh -huh. ramses is shown where he has to stand on like a box to be tall enough to be the same <laughs> height as the priest so like the priest culture has like totally taken over um and so part of that is the certainly the priests are with the the people being like because the people first revolt against the priests being like, hey, you're supposed to give us the grain. You didn't give us the grain. And the priest is like, hey, man, <laughs> I'm, I'm just like you, uh, <laughs> fellow citizen. I, I'm not I'm not the king. Uh, let's revolt against the king. Why not do that? Um, and so the this this uh, labor revolt does get settled to where grain is rationed out at smaller amounts but given to the people just in time so when Ramses II's, um, his 30-year jubilee ceremony happens, the people uh, don't just rush him and tear him to shreds when the jubilee happens because they get paid off with grain right beforehand. Um, but after him, um, the priests get together and they sent, they have like written communications with each other and this is when the priests are like, you know what? We've had people robbing the graves of and the tombs of the kings for a long time, taking all that gold and stuff for themselves. But because the pharaohs have been so terrible at managing this bureaucracy, it's up to us to do a patriotic duty of robbing all the pharaohs' graves in the valleys of the kings to take all the gold back for, our, for ourselves. And so the priests get a band of group together and they go systematically raid every single tomb in the Valley of the Kings. They bring linen with them because they tear out the mummies from the coffins. They take all the gold. They peel every single jewel and every single thing off of every single monument so that they can have the riches back again in the temples. And regardless of, oh yeah, who cares about the ritualistic idea of an afterlife and like what these things really mean? We'll just wrap them up real quick in some loose linen and then we'll just throw them in a pile of bodies in the back of the cave. 
as we're like systematically taking all this stuff off. And that is the end of like the actual spiritual belief in the afterlife. Once the priests become the total political center and the bureaucratic control of the country to the point where they will defile the under the spiritual understanding of what these tombs represent in order to maintain state power by having resources and gold so that they can negotiate with foreign invaders and everything like that that is basically the end of the the actual faithful understanding in the religion and it's turned now into a consolidation of power in order to control the people wow that's pretty interesting that it it took that evolutionary turn um which makes sense like when we go to when we go to christianity and we go to some of the other religions once the priest class arises and they get to hold all the information um it doesn't the requirement of the ruling body priests of the religion is not for them to actually be devout and faithful to the adherence of the religion it's up to them to make money (laughs) yeah 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 and and that's kind of why you know, again, it was my my hypothesis or whatever, but why I think the laying the groundwork for the Proto-Indo-Europeans as uh, having this absorption of culture and this fluidity of culture and all that kind of stuff is um, going to show how things kind of evolve and stuff. And this uh, that sets the stage for why Egypt then becomes a cosmopolitan sort of global pass-through community where people are obsessed with their culture but Egyptians are totally kind of fine with just usurpers coming in from different areas and taking control because it's really this priest class that is holding together the notion of the Egyptian civilization not whoever the ruler is at the time at any individual time yeah man well you took us through 4,000 years yep Yep. With the, with the 4,000 years with a quick uh, 13,000 year preface. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So I'm sure it'll like, I'm excited to start diving into, you know, how other cultures bumped up against Egypt, because I'm sure that since it happened near the decline of Egypt and everything, there's going to be some interplay there. The other thing is in the new kingdom during before the the priest class revolts against the monarchy um the big establishment of sort of hey we're getting back to we're getting back to being good Egypt and out of this dark age um is the funeral arrangements for everyone not just the monarchy but like everyone starts to do like the burial rituals for themselves and not just that they no longer are doing even where they're like burying themselves with actual mummified animals and actual gold and actual jewels. Like the regular people bury themselves with a bunch of wooden figurines that are just representations of the things they'd enjoyed in life. So like a wooden ship and here's a wooden version of myself when I made beer and here's a little wooden figurine of of my daughters making linens and stuff like that. And that I'm buried with that. And so it's just sort of this representation of a ritual that this is just a tradition that we do maybe not so much oh my gosh this is a a devout belief that i hold type of thing yeah 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 
Um, sort of like saying, until I mean, death do us part in your wedding vows when no one believes that anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's like the... I What country is it that the coffins they make for people are just like things they liked in life, like a giant pack of cigarettes? Or <laughs> I don't know what country that is, but I want to go there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it's funny how like, you know, you can have these situations where, I don't know, I always find it interesting. There's, oh God, what? I, I think it's Iceland um, that like they have, you know, a pretty dark sense of humor and they, a lot of their like tombstones are like, like morbid jokes about how they died or whatever they did in life and stuff like that. So it's, it's interesting that there's still this tradition of burial, but it's, it's, it doesn't have the reverence as much. Um, it's more like we just kind of do this thing and why not have a fun time with it while we do it. Right. You see how it goes from being a very, a practical, pragmatic belief system where, oh crap, we're going to need this stuff later. <laughs> well, I got to yeah. bury my actual cows with me just because I'm going to need those later. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to bury my actual servants with me because I'm going to need those later to being uh well, it's not practical at all. It's just a representation of a tradition. It's not even like a belief system that any of these, I'm not taking any actual things with me because I'm not even pretending that I'm bringing actual things with me. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Well, cool. So good job, Eric. Thanks for telling me about Egypt. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope your voice is fine for your show. Oh yeah, it'll be great. I just did talking. <clears throat> I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sound like when they tried to uh, redo uh, Akhenaten's skull to see what he sounded like. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh yeah, and King Tut. They found. They find King Tut's stuff because his is the only. Um, tomb that doesn't get raided by the priest because they're so um ferociously raiding all the other tombs they pile up all the garbage from the other tombs on top of this one tomb entrance of this little boy king who wasn't around very long so they like it's not even one they've thought about because <laughs> yeah. they went after all the big ones and they're like oh oh yeah we forgot about that little boy one who only lasted a couple years uh who where's his entrance oh we can't find it yeah, he was he was like seventeen when he died, right? Yeah, of of possibly a broken leg. Yeah, or or head damage. Who? Uh, well, there's 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 much debate on whether maybe he was it died in battle or he could have just like fallen off a chariot and broke his neck. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> or or was he murdered by other people who wanted power? Yeah, could be. Could who be knows? all of them. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Until next week. Bye.